0: Please remain standing and turn with me to number. Uh, I'm sorry, to Jeremiah chapter ten. Jeremiah chapter ten. We'll read verses one through sixteen. This will be our Old Testament reading, preparing us to hear the story of the opposition of one particular silversmith and and his idol making colleagues uh, to the gospel in the book of Acts. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them, for the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due, for among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus shall you say to them, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols for his images are false and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance, the Lord of hosts is his name. Amen. Let's turn to Acts chapter 19. And we'll read verses 21 to 41. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom Asia, all Asia and the world, worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, and even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus! Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open And there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Amen. You may be seated. In Shakespeare's Macbeth, there's a scene near the end where everything has gone wrong for Macbeth. His wife has just died, and he gives a speech about how meaningless life now seems to him. And he says, life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. That sense of the meaninglessness of life, that that sound and fury, is not just a pretty good description of, of what life feels like inwardly to people who reject the message of Jesus that subjective um, kind of loss of a center for meaning and value in life. But it, it also turns out to be a pretty good description for the attacks of the world against Christ and against his church and against the gospel. Because in terms of in, of logic, of, of reason, of reality, the opponents of Christ really don't have a leg to stand on. Why? Because He is the creator, He's the King, He is risen and reigning, and everything holds together in Him. And so any attempt to oppose Christ depends on Christ in the first place, because it's in Him that we live and move and have our being. But that does not mean that the opposition is not fierce and frightening and determined. So the key, then, is for the people of God to learn to see past the attacks of the world to the heart motives that lie beneath them, uh, to see through those attacks and understand how, how empty and how self-defeating they really are when you, when you look a level beneath the surface, and then also to see beyond those attacks, to see past them to the, to the Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, who is sovereignly preserving and protecting his church in the midst of those attacks and bringing us safely through. And so those are a few things that we're going to focus on today. And we're going to use these headings. The first one is the Almighty Dollar, verses 21 to 27. Second, the Sound and the Fury, verses 28 to 34. And last, the Calming of the Storm, verses 35 to 41. So the Almighty Dollar, the Sound and the Fury and the calming of the storm. All right, in verse 21, Paul is about ready to leave Ephesus, where he has been ministering for some time, to go west uh, into Macedonia and Greece to visit again uh, those churches from his second missionary journey we wrapped up a while ago, uh, Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth and so on. And during those upcoming travels, um, he is going to write a letter. Uh, it's going to be the letter of uh, the second letter to the Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians chapter one, listen to what Paul writes to them. He says, "For we do not want you to be unaware brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia." He's talking about Ephesus, uh, which was in Asia Minor, right? So there in Ephesus, he says, "We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, That we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. And why was that? Well, I think it's reasonable to guess that it may have had something to do with this riot described in Acts 19. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Verse 23, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. We we want to ask this question to begin with. The riot that breaks out in verse 29, is that riot about religion or is it about money? Is it about religion or is it about money? And you might think, well, obviously he's going to say it's actually about money. Well, it's not quite that simple. I would, I would actually say it's, a, it's going to be about both. It is both kind of mixed and jumbled together in the hearts of these people who end up rioting against the gospel. The crowd is crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That is a religious statement. It's a theological statement, in fact. They are really filled with this religious fervor to come to the defense of their city's patron goddess. But we can ask why that religious fervor? What whipped them up into this religious frenzy? Well, here we find out before the riot happens. Here's how it all starts. Men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. We have our wealth from making, uh, from supporting the Artemis temple and the worship that goes on there, but look what's happening now. Demand for our product is going down, and you know what that means. It means... Lower prices, lower income, and higher unemployment for guys like us. These are craftsmen, artisans, who, are, who depend for their livelihood on people worshipping Artemis. But, Demetrius tells them, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And so he's concerned that their trade's going to come into disrepute And that maybe even this temple might be starting to be counted as nothing and Artemis herself might be deposed from her magnificence, she whom Asia and all the world worship. Now, I want to see a few things in that speech. The first one is something commentator Ben Witherington points out. One of the things that Luke is doing indirectly through this speech is he is is subtly demonstrating the power and effectiveness of of the gospel mission up to this point in this region. It is a great many people that Paul has persuaded, enough people that it is starting to make a noticeable impact on the quarterly earnings reports for these guys. And so um, before we get to the problems with Demetrius and the things that he says that are wrong, I want to just take in here for a minute how through the mouth of one of his enemies, the Lord is demonstrating the power of his word. And the progress that it's been making in this area. It's so powerful is the gospel that it cannot be ignored by the church's enemies. People can hate it, they can oppose it, they can try to defeat it, but they cannot disregard it. It's a message that must be reckoned with. Christ is a person who must be reckoned with. And that's the great question of life, is what are you going to do about Jesus? Who do you say that I am? as Jesus asked. Second thing, notice the, the deep irony of the way that Demetrius kind of comes to the defense to, to stick up for his goddess Artemis. And it, it kind of reminds me of uh, when Gideon destroys the altar of Baal. We covered this in evening worship a few weeks ago. And um, and the men of his town want his dad to, to turn him in so that he can be punished for this blasphemy against Uh, Their god, Baal. Um, But remember what Gideon's dad says. He basically says, seriously, guys? If Baal is so great, then why doesn't Baal stick up for himself? Will you contend for Baal or will you save him? If he is a god, let him contend for himself. So, What kind of goddess is it who needs her followers to come to her defense? Isn't it supposed to work the other way around that Artemis should be coming to their defense? says, she may even be deposed from her magnificence. Imagine saying that about your deity. If she's so magnificent, she should be able to stand up for herself, right? I have to wonder if, if Demetrius uh, was pretty self-aware about this, if he, if he realized this kind of internal contradiction. I don't know. What I do know is that he is, uh, whether self-aware or not, um, he is using Artemis. He is using this goddess rhetorically to drum up support for his cause, his real heart commitment, what he really values, which is really something else. And that brings us to another thing to notice about the speech. That same commentator I mentioned earlier uh, points out that Demetrius' response to the gospel here fits into a theme that has developed in the book of Acts. It's come up more than once. Think about Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5. Think about Simon the Magician in chapter 8. Going back to the Gospel of Luke, you could think about the rich ruler who went away very sad when Jesus called him to give up his wealth uh, to follow him. What do they all have in common? All these people are so wrapped up with money... Uh, that they miss the message their focus on wealth and and protecting their possessions or increasing their possessions or using money to manipulate religious matters uh, blinds them to what they could have had if they focused their attention instead on Christ himself. This is in contrast by the way to what just happened. A little earlier, the people who burned fifty thousand dollars fifty thousand pieces of silver worth of their uh, magic books, showing um, giving up this tremendous collection of wealth uh, to demonstrate their loyalty to Christ and their repentance, as a counterexample. <clears throat> so think about it: if, what if what if Demetrius had looked at the same data that was in front of him? Okay, so this preacher is going around. He's convincing people that Artemis is a false god. They're deciding not to worship anymore, and that means that business is getting worse for us. How am I going to respond? What if Demetrius had looked at that same information and asked, what if he's right? What, what am I doing with my life after all? You know, Have I built my whole career on a falsehood? And, and if so, wouldn't I want to know that? Wouldn't I rather have the truth? Is there any way that maybe I can turn my creative skills to the service of my creator instead of the service of a counterfeit? But, of course, Demetrius does not even consider that path. And that reveals, I think, what his God really is. Is it Artemis? Outwardly, yes. But what does the worship of Artemis really mean to him? Why does he worship Artemis? Well, the worship of Artemis means... For him, selling statues, which is how he makes his living, it's how he makes his money. And so, yes, he can wrap what he's saying in the respectable religious language of pagan religion. But when it comes right down to it, what is Demetrius' deity? It's the almighty dollar. His allegiance to Artemis is a means to an end. It's because Artemis is the pathway to what he ultimately values, which is not Artemis. Now this, this sort of thing doesn't just apply to uh, ancient Greek silversmiths and craftsmen. It's true now as well. It is, this is always true, this is just human nature. A person's God, a person's God is whatever that person ultimately values. Your God is whatever you ultimately value, what your heart is committed to above all else. And the same thing is true for the people around you. And that is true whether you use religious language to describe it or not. Just because people are using religious language, including the language of Christianity, doesn't mean that religion is what they're really interested in. Um, You can see this, by the way, in politics. You can see it when people use uh, religious kind of tropes to try to get you to act a certain way, to try to get you to vote a certain way, even though religion for them really is not at all what they really care about. It's a rhetorical ploy to get you on board with their agenda, and they're just as disingenuous as this Demetrius. We should also, moving out of that uh, sphere of public life, to our, our conversations about the gospel. We should watch out for this when we're, when we're seeking to talk to people about, about Christ. Um, People may have intellectual objections to the faith, and we can talk about those things. But we always need to be aware that a person's resistance to Christianity, often at the root, has much more to do with their desires than anything else. What if there is a God behind their God? Or a God behind even their atheism? something that they they fundamentally value and that they are terrified of losing, whether that's wealth or safety or pleasure or position or knowledge or any of these other possible ultimate commitments. See, Demetrius was more about money than he was about Artemis. And money is just one of many options out there that people are devoting their lives to, that are shaping people's ultimate beliefs. And that belief system... Maybe coming from this ultimate heart commitment, and that's where we need to try to drill down to. So we talk with people, and as we search our own hearts and think about where are we really standing, where is our uh, spiritual weight really resting, and what do we care the most about? What would we give anything for? Now, whatever we may think about the, the merits of Demetrius's pitch to these guys here. Um, the fact is that it's very effective. Appealing to people's pocketbooks is very effective. You convince somebody that somebody wants to take their money and you get a very emotional reaction. It is predictable. And that's what this riot really is. It is a very emotional, heard response to the incitement of Demetrius. Um, notice that there is, there is no... Um, reasonable complaint. There's no argument being made by this crowd. There's not even a clear accusation that they're making. Um, There's just this raw fury of the mob. That's what this is. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. It is an outburst of sound and fury signifying nothing. And and because the crowd can't really agree on what they are trying to achieve, the riot sort of just descends to this lowest common denominator where they keep uh, just repeating the same chant over and over, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now this is another thing to bear in mind as we interact with the culture around us. We need to remember that the the sort of big movements, the the tides of opinion that we come up against... Are, are very often not driven by rational arguments. They're not driven by a considered, dispassionate weighing of the evidence on a level playing field. So much of it is this highly emotional herd mentality where people get swept up without really knowing why they believe what they believe, why they're saying the same things that everybody else is saying, except that everybody else is saying them and it just seems like this is what we do. This is what we, These are the accepted things to say, the accepted things to believe. And if everybody is saying this, and I guess anyone who opposes it must be a really bad person. It's like that Trace Adkins song. There's nothing we need to analyze. There ain't no rhyme or reason why because this ain't, this ain't no thinking thing. And that's the way a lot of people's beliefs are, are shaped. And it's maybe not so clear when you talk to individuals, but when you see the big tides of opinion and the way that people together as a group start to think and act See, what we need to do is to help people to break th- out of the illusion. To see them, the, the crowd over there, instead of just being swept up in it. To see the crowd, the pack of rebellious humanity and its fight against God for, for what it is. To see the way that crowd, that herd mentality is shaping their thinkings and thinking in ways maybe they didn't realize, and to show them there's another alternative to show them that if this many people are so upset about the gospel and the claims of Christ and the law of God as it's applied to real life, well, maybe it's worth considering, what if it's true? So often people's response when they're presented with the truth of the gospel and the good reasons for believing it is simply to shout louder. Louder. That's the way so much of public discourse in, in media and online works today. It's not about who has the better arguments, it's about who can shout the loudest and intimidate their opposition, whoever it happens to be. And what ends up happening is people just double down on falsehood, Falsehoods that can't be defended. They're simply indefensible. But if we shout them loud enough and repeat them enough times, then people will come to accept them. Artemis must be great. Why? Because Asia and all the world worship her. We can't let these Christians make people stop worshiping her. Why? Why? Because everybody worships her. You see how it's it's just going in a circle. It's irrational. It is self-defeating. If Artemis is so great, then Christianity is not going to be some threat to her magnificence. If she's really magnificent, then her magnificence will shine through. But if Christianity is true, then why so much passion and intensity for a lie, for a religious mirage, This crowd's very outpouring of zeal actually, I think, reveals their insecurity in their God. The instability of their religious foundations. Lots of sound and fury to make up for the fact that there's nothing solid underneath that they're standing on. If your best defense of the way you view the world is to shout louder, then maybe you need to reevaluate your view of the world. That's one of our tasks as Christians going into a world that is lost and that is without foundations to help people to see that and help people realize there is a solid place to stand. There is a rock that is higher than I. It can be a refuge for you and a solid place to stand in the churning waters. Well, eventually this local official, this town clerk, stands up and he basically points out the obvious. He's trying to to stop the crowd from... Uh, doing something really rash that's going to bring down on them the long arm of Roman law. they'd really all be in trouble if they did a public execution without a trial or something like that. Roman authorities would be very upset. It would be bad for Ephesus It would be really bad for business. And so he says, look, if these men have done something illegal, take them to court over it. If if we need to somehow investigate their movement, we have a regular assembly that's there to deal with things like that um and uh, so in this case this is an evidence of uh, God's common grace at work through the rule of law uh, to protect the church um, in in this in this instance where the violence of the mob does not prevail. But there's something more we can say I think about how this fits into the Narrative of Acts, and we've been seeing Christ do time after time. Luke is not explicit about this. He sort of ends the story without comment, but I think that Luke would have us to see here yet another evidence of Christ's sovereign and supernatural preservation of his servants as he uses Paul to continue spreading the gospel and as he keeps him safe here, even when the opposition seems overwhelming. And like maybe this time Paul is not going to get out of this one alive, and yet he does. Earlier I mentioned from 2 Corinthians, how Paul reflects on this experience, how he was so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. But listen to how he continues. I didn't finish reading the passage earlier. Here's how he goes on. He says, But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Commenting on this passage, Matthew Henry points us to Psalm 65, which describes the sovereignty of God over the most powerful forces of nature, uh, but not only of nature. It says, he is the one who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. So, just like Jesus stood up in the boat and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased in Luke chapter 8, here the Lord Jesus stills the tumult of the peoples, that same almighty power to preserve his own. Once again, making the way for the gospel to continue unchecked, in spite of all of this fierce and frightening and determined opposition that his opponents can muster. You see, next to what Christ can do, next to the unshakable truth and almighty power of the Lord Jesus, everything else is all sound and fury, signifying nothing. The church does not have to fear. So you and I then need to go into our callings this week boldly, in that settled confidence that Christ is on his throne. That just because the world is continually shouting louder and louder in opposition to him, and just because the voice of the mob is all around us and is so deafening, and at times disorienting, we need to have this confidence that in the word of Christ, we have the truth of Christ. and In fact, we have Christ himself, and that in him, in the Lord Jesus, we do not need to fear anything that is frightening, as 1 Peter 3 says. And that's not to say that it isn't frightening and fierce and determined opposition. but It's to say that Christ is on his throne above all of these things. And it's also for us to remember that we have in Christ a message of hope and truth and salvation, and rescue from all of this chaos that people need to hear. People who need to be freed from that hamster wheel of public opinion. They're just swept up in people who are blindly buying in to whatever the mob of contemporary culture is shouting. But they're swept up in it because they haven't heard that there's a better way. Because they ha- Or maybe they have heard, but they haven't really seen it lived out. truth about Jesus, truth that they can take a stand on that isn't self-defeating, that won't just keep shifting beneath their feet, a target that is not always moving like the whims of the masses. See, we have a message about a creator who is king over the crowds. But it's important to remember he only was enthroned over the crowds after he himself first became the victim of a very similar kind of crowd. That great is Artemis of the Ephesians chant would have been very scary to hear. But just imagine that other cry of crucify him. And in fact, they did. See, Paul survived this mob, but Christ did not survive that one. They put him on the cross where he suffered as a sacrifice for us. And he suffered on the cross not only so that we could be forgiven by God for our sins. as essential to the gospel and is an important part of it. But there's more than that. Christ suffered on the cross at the hands of that mob also so that we could now have hope and confidence that when we face the fury of the world that we belong to him in the midst of it. That, rem- that we can remember that he faced down the world for us in his trial. And that for him, that the cross was not the end of the story. Because in the resurrection of Christ, Jesus actually had the last word. See, Jesus isn't like Artemis in this passage. A deity who needs us to come to his defense. So that we can protect his magnificence so it doesn't get lost. No, the Lord Jesus is the one who gave his life to come to our defense when we had no other hope in the world. And he is the risen Christ who has promised to protect us, who has promised never to leave us or forsake us, and he is the one who has the power not just to calm the storms of nature, but to still even the tumult of the peoples. And that is good news for the people of God. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for this aspect of the gospel, that not only did Christ die as a sacrifice for our sins, but he died victoriously so that we might have hope when we experience the same opposition he faced in union with him, our risen Savior. So, Lord, we pray that you would fill our hearts with the hope of these things and that you would equip us to extend that hope to others, to help them out of the whirlpool of the sound and the fury um, to find that firm place to stand on a rock that is higher than we are. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.